0: book one chapter three of their mutual child by p g woodhouse this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information not a volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. their mutual child chapter three the mates meet kirk winfield was an amiable if rather weak young man with whom life for twenty-five years had dealt kindly he had perfect health an income more than sufficient for his needs a profession which interested without monopolizing him a thoroughly contented disposition and the happy knack of surrounding himself with friends that he had to contribute to the support of the majority of these friends might have seemed a drawback to some men kirk did not object to it in the least he had enough money to meet their needs and being a sociable person who enjoyed mixing with all sorts and conditions of men he found the Liberty Hall regime pleasant. He liked to be a magnet, attracting New York's bohemian population. If he had his preferences among the impecunious crowd he used the studio as a chapel of ease, strolling in when it pleased them, drinking his whiskey, smoking his cigarettes, borrowing his money, and, on occasion, his spare bedrooms and his pyjamas, he never showed it. He was, fully as pleasant to Percy Shanklin, an elegant, perpetually resting English actor, whom he disliked as far as he was capable of disliking anyone, as he was to Hank Jardine, the prospector, and Hank's prize-fighter friend, Steve Dingle, both of whom he liked enormously. It seemed to him sometimes that he had drifted into the absolutely ideal life. He lived entirely in the present. The passage of time left him untouched, day followed day, week followed week, and nothing seemed to change. He was never unhappy, never ill, never bored he would get up in the morning with the comfortable knowledge that the day held no definite duties george pennycutt would produce one of his excellent breakfasts the next milestone would be the arrival of steve dingle five brisk rounds with steve a cold bath and a rub down took him pleasantly on to lunch after which it amused him to play at painting there was always something to do when he wearied of that until almost before the day had properly begun up came george with one of his celebrated dinners and then began the incursion of his friends one by one they would drop in make themselves very much at home to help their host through till bedtime and another day would slip into the past it never occurred to kirk that he was wasting his life he had no ambitions ambition is born of woman and no woman that he had ever met had ever stirred him deeply he had never been in love and he had come to imagine that he was incapable of anything except a mild liking for women. He considered himself immune, and was secretly glad of it. He enjoyed his go-as-you-please existence too much to want to have it upset. He belonged, in fact, to the type which, when the moment arrives, falls in love very suddenly, very violently, and for all time. Nothing could have convinced him of this. He was like a child, lighting matches in a powder magazine, when the idea of marriage crossed his mind he thrust it from him with a kind of shuddering horror he could not picture to himself a woman who could compensate him for the loss of his freedom and still less of his friends his friends were men's men he could not see them fitting into a scheme of life that involved the perpetual presence of a hostess hank jardine for instance to kirk the great point about hank was that he had been everywhere seen everything and was, when properly stimulated with tobacco and drink, a fountain of reminiscence. But he could not talk, unless he had his coat off, and his feet up on the back of a chair. No hostess could be expected to relish that. Hank was a bachelor's friend. He did not belong in a married household. The abstract wife could not be reconciled to him, and Kirk, loving Hank like a brother, firmly dismissed the abstract wife. He came to look upon himself as a confirmed bachelor. He had thought out the question of marriage in all its aspects, and decided against it. He was the strong man who knew his own mind, and could not be shaken. Yet on the afternoon of the day following Mrs. Laura Delane Porter's entry into his life, Kirk sat in the studio feeling for the first time in recent years a vague discontent. He was uneasy, almost afraid. The slight dislocation in the smooth working machinery of his existence caused by the compulsory retirement of george pennicut had made him thoroughly uncomfortable with discomfort had come introspection and with introspection this uneasiness that was almost fear a man living alone without money troubles to worry him sinks inevitably into a routine fatted ease is good for no one it sucks the soul out of a man kirk as he sat smoking in the cool dusk of the studio was wondering almost in a panic whether all was well with himself this mild domestic calamity had upset him so infernally it could not be right that so slight a change in his habits could have such an effect upon him george had been so little hurt the doctor gave him a couple of days before complete recovery that it had not seemed worth while to kirk to engage a substitute it was simpler to go out for his meals and make his own bed but It was the realization that this alteration in his habits had horribly disturbed and unsettled him that was making Kirk subject himself now to an examination of quite unusual severity. He hated softness. Physically he kept himself always in perfect condition. Had he become spiritually flabby? Certainly this unexpected call on his energies would appear to have found him unprepared. It spoiled his whole day, knowing when he got out of bed in the morning that he must hunt about and find his food instead of sitting still and having it brought to him it frightened him to think how set he had become forty eight hours ago he would have scorned the suggestion that he coddled himself he would have produced as evidence to the contrary his cold baths his exercises his bouts with steve dingle today he felt less confidence for all his baths and boxing the fact remained that he had become at the age of 26 such a slave to habit that a very trifling deviation from settled routine had been enough to poison life for him Bachelors have these black moments and it is then that the abstract wife comes into her own to Kirk brooding in the dusk the figure of the abstract wife seemed to grow less formidable the fact that she might not get on with Hank Jardine of less importance revolutionary thought that life was rather a bore and would become more and more of a bore as the years went on, unless he had someone to share it with, crept into his mind, and stayed there. He shivered. These were unpleasant thoughts, and in his hour of clear vision he knew whence they came. They were entirely due to the knowledge that, instead of sitting comfortably at home, he would be compelled in a few short hours to go out and get dinner at some restaurant. To such a pass had he come in the twenty-sixth year of his life. Once the gods have marked a bachelor down, they give him few chances to escape. It was when Kirk's mood was at its blackest, and the figure of the abstract wife had ceased to be a menace, and become a shining angel of salvation, that Laura Delane Porter, with Ruth Bannister at her side, rang the studio bell. Kirk went to the door. He hoped it was a tradesman. He feared it was a friend. In his present state of mind he had no use for friends. When he found himself confronting Mrs. Porter, he became momentarily incapable of speech. It had not entered his mind that she would pay him a second visit. Possibly it was joy that rendered him dumb. Good afternoon, Mr. Winfield, said Mrs. Porter. I have come to inquire after the man Pennicut. Ruth, this is Mr. Winfield. Mr. Winfield, my niece, Miss Bannister. And Kirk perceived for the first time that his visitor was not alone. In the shadow behind her a girl was standing. He stood aside to let Mrs. Porter pass, and Ruth came into the light. If there are degrees in speechlessness, Kirk's aphasia became doubled and trebled at the sight of her. It seemed to him that he went all to pieces as if he had received a violent blow curious physical changes were taking place in him his legs which only that morning he had looked upon as eminently muscular he now discovered to be composed of some curiously unstable jelly he also perceived a fact which he had never before suspected that he had heart disease his lungs too were in poor condition he found it practically impossible to breathe the violent trembling fit which assailed him he attributed to general organic weakness he gaped at ruth ruth outwardly remained unaffected by the meeting but inwardly she was feeling precisely the same sensation of smallness which had come to mrs porter on her first meeting with kirk if this sensation had been novel to mrs porter it was even stranger to ruth to think humbly of herself was an experience that seldom happened to her she was perfectly aware that her beauty was remarkable even in a city of beautiful women and it was rarely that she permitted her knowledge of that fact to escape her her beauty to her was a natural phenomenon impossible to overlook the realization of it did not obtrude itself into her mind it simply existed subconsciously yet for an instant it ceased to exist she was staggered by a sense of inferiority it lasted but a pinpoint of time this riotous upheaval of her nature she recovered herself so swiftly that kirk busy with his own emotions had no suspicion of it a moment later He, too, was himself again. He was conscious of feeling curiously uplifted and thrilled, as if the world had suddenly become charged with ozone and electricity, and, for some reason, he felt capable of great feats of muscle and energy. But the aphasia had left him. And he addressed himself with a clear brain to the task of entertaining his visitors. "'George is better today,' he reported. He never was bad said mrs porter succinctly he doesn't think so possibly not he is hopelessly weak-minded ruth laughed kirk thrilled at the sound poor george she observed don't waste your sympathy my dear said mrs porter that he is injured at all is his own fault for years he has allowed himself to become gross and flabby with the result that the collision did damage which it would not have done to a man in hard condition You, Mr. Winfield, she added turning abruptly to Kirk, would scarcely have felt it. But then you, went on Mrs. Porter, are in good condition. Cold baths. I beg your pardon. Do you take cold baths? I do. Do you do Swedish exercises? I go through a series of evolutions every morning with the utmost loathing. I started them as a boy, and they have become a habit like dram-drinking. I would leave them off if I could, but I can't. Do nothing of the kind. They are invaluable, but undignified. Let me feel your biceps, Mr. Winfield," said Mrs. Porter. She nodded approvingly. Like iron, she poised a finger and ran a meditative glance over his form. Kirk eyed her apprehensively. The finger darted forward and struck home in the region of the third waistcoat button. Wonderful," she exclaimed. "Ruth, yes, aunt. Prod, Mr. Winfield, where my finger is pointing. He is extraordinarily muscular." "'I say, really,' protested Kirk. "'He was a modest young man, and this exploration of his more intimate anatomy by the fingertips of the girl he loved was not to be contemplated.' "'Just as you please,' said Mrs. Porter. "'If I were a man of your physique, I should be proud of it.' "'Wouldn't you like to go up and see George?' asked Kirk. "'It was hard on George, but it was imperative that this woman be removed somehow.' "'Very well. I have brought him a little book to read.' which will do him good it is called elementary rules for the preservation of the body he's learned one of them all right since yesterday said kirk do not walk in front of automobiles the rules i refer to are mainly concerned with diet and wholesome exercise explained mrs porter careful attention to them may yet save him his case is not hopeless ruth let mr winfield show you his pictures they are poor in many respects but not entirely without merit Ruth, meanwhile, had been sitting on the couch, listening to the conversation without really hearing it. She was in a dreamy, contented mood. She found herself curiously soothed by the atmosphere of the studio, with its shaded lights and its atmosphere of peace. That was the keynote of the place—peace. From outside came the rumble of an elevated train, subdued and softened like faintly heard thunder. Somebody passed the window, whistling. A barrier seemed to separate her from these noises of the city. New York was very far away. I believe I could be wonderfully happy in a place like this, she thought. She became suddenly aware, in the midst of her meditations, of eyes watching her intently. She looked up and met Kirks. She could read the message in them as clearly as if he had spoken it, and she was conscious of a little thrill of annoyance at the thought of all the tiresome formalities which must be gone through before he could speak it they seemed absurd it was all so simple he wanted her she wanted him she had known it from the moment of their meeting the man had found his woman the woman her man nature had settled the whole affair in an instant and now civilization, propriety, etiquette whatever one cared to call it must needs step in with the rules and regulations and precedents the goal was there clear in sight but it must be reached by the winding road appointed she being a woman and by virtue of her sex primeval scorned the road and would have ignored it but she knew men and especially at that moment as their eyes met she knew kirk and she understood that to him the road was a thing that could not be ignored the mere idea of doing so would seem grotesque and impossible possibly even shocking to him men were odd formal creatures slaves to precedent he must have time it was the prerogative of the male time to reveal himself to her to strut before her to go through the solemn comedy of proving to her by the exhibition of his virtues and the careful suppression of his defects what had been clear to her from the first instant that here was her mate the man nature had set apart for her he would begin by putting on a new suit of clothes and having his hair cut she smiled it was silly and tiresome but it was funny Will you show me your pictures, Mr. Winfield? she asked. If you'd really care to see them, I'm afraid they're pretty bad. Exhibit A. Modesty, thought Ruth. The journey had begun. End of chapter three The Mates Meet. Read by Tim Bulkley of BigBible.org.